Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 7. The reading is Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, the religious court. Stephen has been charged with wanting to destroy the temple and the Jewish religious laws and customs, and he replies by giving an overview of the Old Testament. Because it's quite long, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but summarise some of the verses, hopefully in a way that keeps the sense of what he says. So Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham whilst he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, For four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. In verses 9 to 33, Stephen tells the story of Joseph and how God helped him and his family. And then he goes on to tell the story of Moses in Egypt. Moses twice intervenes to save one of his people, but is rejected. He flees abroad, and then God speaks to him in the desert, in the burning bush and sends him back to Egypt to rescue his people. We pick the story up again at verse 35. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for forty years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our ancestors and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. 
As for this fellow Moses, who let us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon and stars. We jump now to verse 47 where we hear that only after many years does King Solomon build the first temple for God. So this is still Stephen speaking. It was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the Righteous One. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Good morning, everybody. Today, we are simply looking at two views of God, a right one and a wrong one. Uh, so let's pray before we start. Father, may your Holy Spirit help us now to understand this quite dense passage. Help us to end up with a right view of who you are, and may that understanding change our lives. Amen. So, Acts chapter 7, uh, do open it up if you have a Bible handy, uh, and we find Stephen on trial for his life. Last week, Ben was telling us about how Stephen had been chosen to act as a, as a sort of office administrator. In uh, church terms, uh, that's a Clive or a Wendy or a Jenny, uh, someone working in the back office. But even people in the back office are called to talk about Jesus. That's what Stephen has been doing, and that's why Stephen has got into trouble. Uh, if you talk about Jesus, you probably will get into trouble. So the religious leaders of his time have got him up in front of their council, chapter 7. We've got his defence speech as he answers the high priest's question. That's in verse 1. The question is, are these charges true? And that takes us into our first point, because those charges relate to a wrong view of God. Look back at uh, verse 14 of chapter 6, and the accusation there is that Jesus will destroy the temple and also the laws and customs of Moses. You see, for the religious people of the time, that, that temple and those laws and all those customs, well, they'd sort of taken over from God himself. They'd become synonymous with God. The building and the way of doing things had become more important than knowing God himself. 
And actually, that is easily done. And it still happens today. It's easy to replace God with other stuff, especially religious stuff. After all, in this case, the temple was fantastic. It was a brilliant building. I'm sure the worship inside was brilliant. Uh, it was intellectually quite challenging. There were people who were deeply committed to their faith and people died for it. But, you know, just because a belief system or a religion looks good or convinces a lot of people, it doesn't mean it's right. That was true then and it's still true today. And that was Stephen's main point as he stood up in front of this council. His speech is basically saying to that religious council, you're just wrong. Your idea of God is just wrong. And especially he's saying to them, we need to understand that God is not at all affected by these wonderful buildings or how we behave. We can't manage God like that. Now, glance with me at some of the verses. Some of them Sue read, some of them uh, she didn't. <clears throat> but we'll see, just as we skim through them, how God pops up all over the place. He's not constrained. And he always intervenes of his own free will. He's not being managed in any way. So look at that. Verse 2. God appears to Abraham in Mesopotamia. So we're off in Iraq territory. Uh, and then verse 9. Uh, God's with Joseph. This time we're in Egypt. Uh, verse 39. God is with Moses in Midian. Uh, verse 44. God is with the people in the tabernacle, in the desert, in the wilderness, in Sinai. And then verse 46, Solomon does build his temple. But then Stephen quotes Isaiah, some, saying what's something that Solomon knew as well, that God doesn't live in a temple. It's a place you can go to to worship him, but he doesn't live there. And nowhere in all those different meetings between God and his people is he responding to what people do. God sets the agenda, not man. God in the Bible is everywhere and his actions do not depend on some sort of religious rule book. Actually, I reckon most people, even now, think exactly the opposite. They do think that God can be influenced by our behaviour. You know, even people who tell me they don't really believe in God say, well, if there was a God, if there is a heaven, I reckon I've been good enough to get in. If it exists, I've been good enough. It's a sort of insurance policy way of thinking. And I don't think that way of thinking is limited to Christians, to non-Christians. I think Christians think like that too. You know, when I was little, I used to have goldfish. Uh, there were two. One was called Chip. And he came from a fair uh, and one was called Chuff for reasons I have no idea of at all. Um, and Chip and Chuff, Chuff were ideal pets. Uh, they got a little bit of food, a little pinch of food uh, once or twice a day. And then on the weekend, on a Saturday or a Sunday, I give their, pot, their tank a nice clean and a bit of a polish. Um, and we were all happy. So I gave them a little bit of attention. They made me very happy very easily managed and undemanding pet. Well, that's how many folk 
treat God, isn't it? They treat him like my goldfish. Give him a morsel every now and again. Perhaps turn up, give him a little polish on a Sunday. Uh, and that's all right. That keeps God under control. We want God, <coughs> excuse me, we want God to be manageable, defined, not too threatening. J.B. Phillips wrote a book in the 1950s, great title. It was called Your God is Too Small. And his basic idea was a challenge even to Christians who end up creating their own limited definition of God. In those days, he said, perhaps we see God as a head teacher who just wants to check our homework. Or perhaps we rather like the idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and that's nice and comforting. And times haven't changed since he wrote that book. We might have different ideas now. I think there will be plenty of people now who tell you that Jesus is nice and gentle and meek and mild and he'll forgive everybody, but he doesn't judge. There will be others who will tell you, no, it's still very important that we follow certain rituals. That's the way that we keep in with God. I suspect, dare I say it, that there are some of us who think God really can only be a conservative evangelical man carrying an ESV study Bible under his arm. Maybe that's unfair. But, you know, there are all these man-made images, views of God that we sort of build up in ourselves, don't we? But they're not the God of the Bible. And a too small God leads to two big dangers. Firstly, our behaviour becomes more important than our relationship. The behaviour just takes over. It becomes a sort of habit as the relationship dies. That's what had happened in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7. If I can borrow an illustration from another preacher, which is basically my wife at the Goldstone uh, the other week, absolutely right. It's like people following the Covid rules now, or in the future, without realising that the virus has gone away. We can end up with a rule-based life that might look good and feel very safe, but actually has got no real point to it. So that's one danger, that the behaviours just take over. Secondly, when we redefine God in our own image, well, we're not going to tell other people about him. Because frankly, he's not very interesting. He's not got much to offer. Now, I have just discovered Aldi. Bit embarrassing, but there we are. I've discovered Aldi and I've discovered its central aisle, recommended by my son. It's, it's the aisle with all sorts of random bargains in it. It's great fun. Uh, and my family are fed up with me telling them about all the good bargains there are to be had in Aldi's central aisle. But I have to tell you, Aldi has got more to offer than any half-baked, man-made idea of God. A wrong view of God limits him to something manageable, tame. Really, a too small God is no God at all. And in the end, not worth talking about. Well, what about a right view then? Well, Stephen tells us what a right view of God is. Too. Let's have another quick run through Acts chapter 7. And we can see that Stephen tells us 
very simply that God wants a relationship with us. He wants to be our friend. Just look through again a number of verses about how God behaves in this chapter. So with Abraham and Moses, verses 3, 6, 7, 38, he speaks to them, he communicates. He makes promises, verse 5. He gives gifts, verse 8 and 10. And then finally, still relational, verse 42, he turns away. Those are all the behaviours of a God who wants to know us. And that is why Jesus came. It is Jesus' life, death and resurrection that makes that relationship with God possible. Jesus comes as God on earth to show us what God is like and then to die and take the penalty for the sin, for the rebellion that leads to that separation from God, that leads to our rejection of God. And that is why, by the end of this speech, Stephen is beginning to point people to Jesus. That's him referring to the righteous one in verse 52. Um, now, I think Stephen has the same problem that a lot of folk have. But as soon as he mentions Jesus, the conversation gets pretty tricky. Uh, in Stephen's case, uh, of course, it gets particularly difficult. But we'll see that uh, next week. But before he finishes, Stephen has pointed to that right view of God, a God who wants to live in relationship with us and one who rescues. Now, that's another theme of Acts 7, uh, which you might want to explore on your own uh, later on. But it's the God who sent his son to die for us so that that relationship can be restored. Our God has defeated death and his love and power are simply beyond imagining. I was reading a little book by Charles Spurgeon the other day. Uh, it's simply called God Loves You. And in one chapter, he's talking about God's loving kindness. And he says this, he says, I might write on this topic forever, but I still will not have shown you even a tenth of its wonders. That's God's love wonders of God's love for it is altogether an inexhaustible subject and he's right isn't he God's love just goes on and on I've been listening recently to uh, Radio Sussex on the Sunday morning and uh, 7.45 something like that and they have a short slot where people of other faiths non-Christian faiths can talk about how their faith has helped them through the pandemic and it's very interesting because whether you're listening to a Muslim or a Jew or a Buddhist or a Sikh I'm hearing the same thing all the time I hear folk talking about their community or their tradition or their faith but nobody ever talks about a relationship with a living, all-powerful God who only wants the best for each one of us. 
It doesn't matter what we're facing. God is there with us. Many of us, I guess right now, are worried, wrongly or rightly, about death. Stephen was facing death, very immediately. But God has said he will walk through that valley with us. Maybe we feel like life is a perfect storm right now. Everything coming at us, and many of us are with financial difficulties as well. But you know, in those storms, the Gospels say Jesus does care. He commands the storm. Maybe we are worried about what's coming next. We're worried about the future. Jesus says, consider nature, look around you. If God cares for the sparrows, he certainly cares for you. We don't have to work harder to earn his favour. Jesus says simply, we open the door to our lives and he will come in and be with us in all these difficulties. God loves us and he died for us to keep us safe forever. That is our God. That is the right view of God. That is the God revealed to us in the Bible. Well, how do we respond to that? Well, I think that rather depends on uh, where you are in your in your spiritual journey or your spiritual walk. Um, of course, it's perfectly open to you to reject all that stuff. In fact, rejection is a big theme running through Stephen's speech as well. God or his prophets, they're rejected. Moses rejected, verse 27. Prophets rejected, verse 52. The Holy Spirit is rejected, verse 51. And then right at the end, of course, Jesus is rejected in verse 52. That is a choice we all have. It ends in death. It ends in disaster. It does all the way through the Old Testament. That continues to be true. But rejection is is an option. But assuming we have put our trust in Jesus, or we do trust in Jesus, well, there are a couple of more points to think on. Firstly, let's make sure that we are actually trusting in the God of the Bible and not our own man-made version. Let's just challenge ourselves that our God is not becoming too small. Let's make sure we're not trying to make God manageable or we're just following interpretations that suit our way of thinking. Let's make sure we don't accept a lockdown existence with a sort of goldfish God. How do we make sure of that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that Stephen's speech is basically a whistle-stop tour of the whole Bible. I think the Old Testament in my Bible is about 1,200 pages long, uh, and I think Stephen's speech takes up just under two pages. So it's quite a tour de force (coughs) of contracting the Bible. But it's quite clear, isn't it, that Stephen knows his Bible really well. That is the whole Bible you're getting uh, in this talk. And, of course, that is where the Bible speaks to us. He speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word. And that's where we learn about Jesus. That is where God reveals his power and his glory 
in his word, the Bible. So let's make sure that we say, when we say that we're trusting God, that we have read about God, we know about God, we've seen him working by knowing our Bibles, reading our Bibles. And of course, secondly, that God, this huge, mighty, all-powerful God, is a God worth talking about. And that is where we need the Holy Spirit's help. Because it's not easy talking about Jesus. It's jolly scary. And if anybody doesn't think it is, we'll come and join our Alpha group and give it a go. We need the Holy Spirit's help. That's why I think this passage is very clear that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He was completely trusting in the Holy Spirit to help him and guide him. And you'll see, I think, verse 51 uh, Stephen says that the priests uh, resist the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not just limited to priests. We all do that. We all find ourselves resisting the Holy Spirit. But that's stupid because this mighty loving God who loves us only wants the best for us. And his Holy Spirit is in our lives to help us and encourage us. So let's rely on the Holy Spirit. Just as he helped Stephen, he will help us and he will help us talk to others about the Lord Jesus. We need to keep learning about the Lord. Don't we? Let's keep looking at our Bibles and let's keep talking to others about the Lord. So let me wrap up. There is a wrong view of God. And it's a view that says we can keep God happy by how we behave. That is the goldfish god if you like. or there's a right view of god and that's the view of god revealed in jesus christ a god who loves us who wants to be our friend and who died to make that relationship possible and when we enjoy that relationship then we have the holy spirit living in us to help us now, the trouble with a sermon like this is that it's impossible to end. Having set out to describe how great God is, we have a sort of Charles Spurgeon problem of saying, well, how do I ever stop? So I'm going to cheat. As I was preparing this sermon, I found myself in Psalm 36, and there's such great words that will end there. If your God is too small, I'm going to recommend these verses that are going to come up on the screen as an antidote. So I'm going to read those verses and then we'll close. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, 
we see light. Amen.